thank you for braving it through the elements here in California, such as they are, to come here. And uh, for all of you who have joined us online, thank you very much for tuning in. Tonight, we'll start with chanting the Maha Mantra, which is uh, not an ordinary activity. It's extraordinary because it taps into the spiritual atmosphere. As, a, as is mentioned by one of the great teachers of Bhakti, Narada Muni, and he's speaking to his disciple, Srila Vyasadeva, who is the editor and compiler of the Vedas. And he tells him that the mantra itself and the names of Krishna are a murti. And a murti means a form. And he's saying that the form or the name and the form are the same. And then he uses it in a different way and he says, a murti come. And that means that uh, that the word murti also has another meaning in Sanskrit, which means difficulty. But when you say amurti rather than murti, it means that it's not difficult. And what's not difficult, and that is to come directly in contact with Krishna. If one chants the name, then one can have a full vision of Krishna through the power of the name. That's extraordinary. There's other evidence given about the, the power of chanting the mantra. One comes from the Padma Purana, which says that if you do service, and it sounds a little um, hard to believe, but you can serve with your tongue, actually, by repeating the mantra. It's considered a kind of service. Like, you see those people sometimes on the corners advertising a Chinese restaurant or a print shop or something, and they're holding a sign and going like this as a kind of kirtan. Because kirtan comes from the word kirti, which means to bring attention to somebody or make them famous. And so when we say the name of Krishna, then we're holding that sign and saying, oh yeah, look over here. And when people hear the name, then it uh, has a positive effect on their consciousness. As we've talked about before, the name has the same power that Krishna has himself, which is unlimited power. So when people or other living entities, like what are the kind of living entities would you imagine if we chanted in the city, would hear the chanting. Like downtown Palo Alto, or is anybody else but humans down there? Dogs, crows, you name one more. Quail. You could be, try to be a little more obscure. Mongoose. If a mongoose hears the chanting, it goes in little mongoose ears then the mongoose uh, gets benefit, spiritual benefit, because he's the spirit soul also, he's just in a mongoose body. And so it's a kind of service to say the name of Krishna. And the verse says that if you do that service by saying the name through chanting the mantra, then Krishna, because of your service, will be pleased to present himself before you. So the method of bhakti yoga means to act in such a way that the Supreme will want to come and show himself to you. So we're, we're just starting, and everybody's welcome. Make yourself comfortable wherever you feel comfortable. There's chairs. They're not reserved. There's... Uh, Asan's on the floor. We also have zafus in the back in the baskets. So you can sit on chairs if you like. You can also take a zafu 
which is a meditation cushion. It helps be more comfortable through the program. And we're just discussing the, the first part of the program, which will be a group chanting of the Maha Mantra. So the Maha Mantra has three words, Hare, Krishna, and Rama. And these are all names of the Supreme. Hare means the energy of the Supreme, and Krishna means all attractive. And Rama means the highest spiritual pleasure. And a rough uh, translation of the mantra that's been given by Prabhupada is that we're saying, uh, Oh my Lord, O oh energy of the Lord, please engage me in your service. And the system is just to uh, chant sincerely from your heart and listen to the mantra. And we heard yesterday in, in a meeting that we had uh, when we asked devotees about the first time they heard the Maha Mantra when it left an impression and th that they noticed the, the unique quality of the name. And one of the devotees said that um, she noticed that when she was stressed and in anxiety by chanting the holy name, then suddenly she didn't feel so much stress and anxiety. Which stands to reason, because there's a way in which I lose my perspective in the world, and I can get stressed and feel a lot of anxiety because of the pressures, most of them self-imposed, that I, that I uh, subjected myself to. But by chanting, I get a much higher perspective, because it's taking me beyond the realm of of uh, the mind and the body. And so man means mind and tra means to deliver, to pull us above the realm of, of the mind. Does it sound like a reasonable proposition so far to try this? Yes. Okay. So let's chant together and then we're gonna have a discussion about the um, <clears throat> directions that are given in the yoga texts like Bhagavad Gita and Srimad Bhagavatam Bhakti Yoga, that teach how to uh, control the mind. Does that sound reasonable also? Yes. Okay, let's, let's do both then. Thank you again for joining us here today. And the topic today is uh, uh, based on a, a vignette that uh, goes along with one of the main themes, a vignette that I wrote. Uh, I hesitate to say that because why would anybody be talking about something I wrote? Because it relates to one of the main themes of the Bhagavad Gita and the Srimad Bhagavatam for that matter. And the little piece, which I don't have with me, if you have it, Ekitreka Pran or something, somebody online, uh, it's called Boxing with the Mind. And, you know, based on that, we're putting together some, a few parts that. Uh, describe the, the nature of the mind and our relationship with it. How is your relationship, by the way, with your mind these days? <laughs> well, Liffy. <laughs> it's, it's, it's an important topic, as mentioned by Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita. He's, because he says, does Krishna, that the mind can become uh, our best friend or our worst enemy. And we may have experienced that all within the course of an hour. And uh, I know once I was watching a, a toddler on a long flight and noticed that the intervals were shorter between crying and laughing. One minute crying, next minute laughing. These are all expressions generated from one's relationship with the mind. And so, did you find that vignette by, by the way, Ekachakra Pran? Or is it, not, is it readily available? Yes, I'm just copying it into a document now and can share it. Okay. I think we'll just start with that because it kind of gives you an idea. Uh, you need the context for any of the kind of extended metaphor type of work I might be doing with this. As you'll find out in a minute, it's, it has to do with a, a boxing ring. And uh, 
the, the, name, the title of the vignette is uh, Boxing with the Mind. And it has to do with the scenario of, of just one round. And some of you might be thinking, well, that sounds um, <clears throat> resonant with something that a lot of bhakti practitioners do every day. So we, we thought it was a nice fit also. Of course, most boxing matches don't go more than 12 or 14 rounds, some of them shorter, depending on the arrangement. Too bad the boxing world couldn't move up to 16 rounds, then it would fit perfectly. Okay, so now, um, if you would, would you read it? Because your mic sounds pretty good. Okay. Hare Krishna. <laughs> Boxing with the mind. Boxers meet in a ring and fight each other for a set number of rounds. Each round lasts three minutes, and each fight, called a bout, features up to 12 rounds. As a round begins, an official rings a bell and the fighters come out of their corners, touch gloves, and then begin boxing. Artfully dancing about, jabbing at one another with their gloves, each fighter seeks to gain an advantage. Often in a bout, one of the fighters wins by a knockout when he catches his challenger off guard and lands a decisive punch on his opponent's chin. Before this morning's japa, I shook hands with my mind and then we faced off in the Joppa ring, exchanging hooks, jabs, feints, crosses, and combinations. Wary of my mind's tricks, I kept my defenses up, constantly bringing my attention back to the Maha Mantra, even as my adversary tried hard to knock me off my asana and to drag me away from my chanting. In Bhagavad Gita, the greatest of fighters, Arjuna says, for the mind is restless, turbulent, obstinate, and very strong, O Krishna. And to subdue it, I think, is more difficult than controlling the wind. Bhagavad Gita 6.34. Krishna agrees with Arjuna, but says the mind can be overcome. Lord Sri Krishna said, O mighty armed son of Kunti, it is undoubtedly very difficult to curb the restless mind, but it is possible by suitable practice and by detachment, 635. Remembering the words of Krishna and Arjuna, I gained optimism despite a slow start and continued to chant even as I faced a most potent rival. My resolve paid off at the beginning of the eighth round when I caught an auspicious break and suddenly scored a decisive punch, sending my counterpart mind reeling against the ropes. Mesmerized by the constant volley of mantras and intimidated by my grit, my mind had momentarily lowered his guard, letting one very clear Maha Mantra come sailing through. The mantra knocked him back several steps. Stunned by the power of the holy name, my mind staggered on wobbly knees, and he never recovered as my chanting continued with even more enthusiasm. Although he had a reputation of being unbeatable, my mind had succumbed to the power of the holy name and triumphantly, I won the round and the bout by a knockout. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Yeah, we win. So this fight is real and it has serious consequences, because as Krishna describes in the Bhagavad Gita, right now, as we're in the material world, we're, we're in a field of activities that is incompatible with our natures. And this he describes in the 13th chapter of the Gita, where he lists 24 elements of the material nature and goes through the listing of them, showing each element in its different parts. So out of the 24, if we can name them all, just to get an idea the way Krishna does, he says, first of all, there are the, the great elements. Uh, he names earth, water, fire, air, and ether. 
And then he names intelligence, ego, and the unmanifested material nature. That's counted as one element before it becomes uh, divided into various sections. How many is that so far? Thank you. Then you have the uh, sense within. That is called the mind. And that's the chief of all the senses. It's the clearinghouse where all the images from the outside world come through the portals of our senses, which are then listed. So there's five working senses and five knowledge acquiring senses. So the five working senses are the hands, the legs, the belly, uh, the genital, the, and the elimination system. Is that five? And then there's five knowledge-gathering senses, which are the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue. They're all up here, command center, and sense of touch, which is fairly pervasive through the whole body. That's how many do we have now? Nineteen. We need a few more, huh? So then you have the uh, uh, five sense objects, which are taste, Smell, um, touch, sight, and sound. So add those in. 24. We got there somehow or other. That's what we have to work with. That's called the field of activities. And then there are interactions, our interactions with the elements, uh, which desire and uh, hatred... What are the other two? Desire? Huh? Anyway, he names, uh, does Krishna, the, the ways in which uh, we interact with the three, mo with, with these 24 elements, we being the, the living entity who's is situated within the body made up of all these elements, which are incidentally the same exact elements of which the material universe is comprised. So, in this construct, the, the mind has the function of gathering all of the inputs from the outside world. So the, the eyes basically are like uh, video cameras. They're looking out and they're recording everything. In fact, it's mentioned in an article I read about uh, child development, that especially in the first seven years, children are recording everything. So parents, everything they see goes in very deeply. In fact, uh, the Srimad Bhagavatam and also the Yoga Sutras describe how we are always recording. All our senses are taking an in input from the outside world and it gets recorded inside the mind, which is like a digital cloud. It takes everything in. And it's not just from this lifetime, but it's from previous lifetimes as well. And then they get aggregated in the mind. And there's combinations and permutations of these uh, latent impressions, which can be activated at any time. And these are called samskars. So Krishna mentions this in the Bhagavad Gita when Arjuna is asking about how one might fare if he or she takes to yoga and then practices for a while and then falls away. And Krishna talks about purva samskar, that you end up in the next life remembering because of the impressions of your practice from the last life. And you think, oh, maybe I'll take this up again. And this is the explanation given by Patanjali in the Yoga Sutras and Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita and so forth of why we have predisposition towards certain kinds of tastes, smells, and so forth. And of course, uh, because of the force of these impressions, we get a particular kind of body. I know I'm repeating a few things I said yesterday because there's some overlap in the foundational points that, that I, I would like to make. And 
in fact, uh, we get, as Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, a particular kind of body. This is of interest to us, I think, because of the aggregated impressions that we have in our mind when we leave this present body. And that's what uh, compels us, impels us to take another uh, physical body. Material nature arranges it for us based on our needs and our desires, which manifest when we leave this body as uh, a strong force. Uh, it's, it's what we're most interested in. And that is something that uh, isn't reversible at the last moment. It's, it has its own momentum. So we're carried in that way. So when we come into this uh, life, we have a, a particular track that we're on based on, on the mind. And I'm going to read you a couple of statements, by Krishna, one by Krishna himself, where he describes how, quote, all the senses have been under the control of the mind since time immemorial, and the mind himself never comes under the sway of any other. He is stronger than the strongest, and his godlike power is fearsome. Therefore, anyone who can bring the mind under control becomes the master of all the senses. So we're very fortunate uh, to, to come into knowledge of what is creating our impulse, what are creating the impulses that move us in the world, and also the science of yoga, which describes how to reform the mind, how to refine it, how to make it our friend. Uh, when the mind becomes our friend, when it becomes purified, then there's a way in which we can uh, rise above the present situation that we're in here in the material world and come to uh, our original spiritual position. These are very broad strokes, but I will say something that I thought of recently and how when we come into the world, we uh, have to be a little careful. That's why this information is important, because the whole material universe and all the various enticements that we see before us are like clickbait. You know what clickbait is? What is it? Not many will know what that is. What's clickbait? What's the actual definition of it? I know it's a colloquialism, but... Gets a, could get entangling, right? What? It was the old switcheroo. What is it? We need microphones, hundreds of them. Oh, here's one. Sacrificed it off the stand. Hey, Kisha. Oh, okay. yes. Um, clickbait is it's on the internet and it's content whose main purpose is to attract attention and encourage visitors to click on a link to a particular website. And to web go page. to a website, go somewhere else, and then that takes you somewhere else. Yeah, so when you click on clickbait, you get caught somewhere, and just like bait for a fish. So the objects of the senses in the material world act like that until we can actually develop a proper relationship with them, which I'll talk about in, in a few minutes. So... The person who comes to uh, knowledge is given this admonition by Krishna. One must deliver himself with the help of his mind and not degrade himself. The mind is the friend of the conditioned soul and his enemy as well. For him who has conquered the mind, the mind is the best of friends. But for one who has failed to do so, his mind will remain the greatest enemy. Krishna continues, one should engage oneself in the practice of yoga with determination and faith and not be deviated from the path. One should abandon, without exception, all material desires born of mental speculation and thus control all the senses on all sides by the mind. Gradually, step by step, one should become situated in trance by means of intelligence sustained by full conviction and thus the mind 
should be fixed on the self alone and should think of nothing else. So uh, Vyas, in his commentaries, talking about some of the sutras, mentions that the plight of the spiritual entity is compared to the story of the prince who was born in the kingdom and then somehow or other because of a switcheroo the baby prince got separated from the kingdom and from his parents and he ended up in a village of pig farmers and he was raised by pig farmers and then became a very good pig farmer and Meanwhile, the tracing was going on, trying to find out what happened to the royal prince over several years. And finally, as they were able to put together the trail and follow it, they came to this village and they ascertained through astrology and uh, 23andMe <laughs> that this a prince, uh, this pig farmer was actually a prince. And so the appointed representative of the king approached him and pulled him aside and said, excuse me, son, but you're not a pig farmer. And he said, what are you talking about? Look at this. <laughs> I got mud up to here, and these are my pigs. And the representative said, actually, you're a prince. And at first, this young pig farmer, adopted as he was, was incredulous. He couldn't believe it because this was the context of his life. But finally, after hearing the course that the king and queen had taken and the research that they have done and the way that they had found him and they could prove that he was actually of royal origins, he was convinced. And he came back to the palace, took off his uh, pig farmer clothes, and he put on his royal clothes and took up his duties as a prince. So Vyas gives this point that those who get entangled in all these elements that were named as the field of activities here in the material world are kind of up to their chest in mud because the material world's mostly made of mud, like earth, water, fire, air, mix them all together, it's a little muddy down here. And it's a very gross energy. As Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, aparayamitastanyam prakritim vidimi param jiva bhuta mahabaho yayedam dariyatejagat. He, he specifically says, you don't belong here, little jiva. You're not a big farmer. Uh, you're superior, you're parama shakti. And you come from a higher origin, from actually from me, from the spiritual world. You're the offspring of the Supreme. In fact, uh, you were born of nectar. You're meant to go back into the ocean of nectar and not wallow in the mud and other kinds of stuff that I won't name. So this gives us a clue to what's at stake in coming to knowledge, and coming to knowledge requires uh, some kind of understanding, first of all, of our relationship with Krishna, and also our non-relationship with the material world. But before I go into the next points, I just want to take a few reflections. Anything you've heard so far that uh, stuck in your mind, that you felt was... Um, Useful. Hare Krishna Guru Maharaj. Useful or interesting. Go ahead. I really like this point where you mentioned that, uh, uh, oh, little jiva, you don't belong to this world. Uh, it's such a big relief because uh, most of the energy and the time that my mind is uh, trying to find a permanent settlement in this world. So I think it's a much bigger relief to me. Asango Hyayam Purusha, the Vedas say, you have no real connection here, nothing to see, keep moving. It's not your place. And it is a relief, actually, because 
we're incompatible with matter, and there's a lot of weird stuff going on here. I mean, if you really think about it. So I was stimulated by something uh, Nirakula and I read in the 11th Canto recently about how, and I mentioned this in yesterday's class, we don't notice how the body's changing. For instance, the hair grows, the nails grow, skin's changing all the time, everything. But because time is so subtle, all we see is at the intervals, like, oh, that just happened. We don't see while well, it's happening. And the aging process also is very sneaky. One uh, may notice at particular intervals, like at the end of a decade, it's like, oh, a decade went by, my body's changed, and so forth. And if you look at the intervals and you notice the way people are changing, it's rather odd, actually, that you have friends, you have family, and then all of a sudden they're gone. But everyone just takes it for granted that that's, a, that's normal. It's like, no problem. What do you mean, no problem? <laughs> Where did they go? And why is everything morphing into something else? That's a... Uh, incompatible and incompatibility with the nature of of consciousness which doesn't morph like that and has a higher expectations so it's beneath us really to hang out in this energy that's always changing yes Malini Prabhu I like the the boxing ring um, the article that you wrote was really very nice. It's very relatable also uh, because we have this <laughs> battle every day. But the point that I really liked was when when you 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 said that there was one point where the mind was defeated, and there you said that it was defeated by the power of the holy name, um, not that I defeated the mind. Um, that was that was very um, was very significant. Thank yes, you. I'm glad you brought that up because. Uh, this is the um, recommended way that one be able, one is uh, able to defeat the mind. So it seems impossible. As it, I mentioned in that vignette, the mind is known to be undefeated. Because maybe you'll defeat, maybe you go on a diet and you say like, okay, and then maybe you change your mind later and you have a gallon of ice cream and a spoon and you're in the corner and the ice cream's all gone and you say, what happened? And the mind's going, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> so there's, there's this ongoing relationship, as Krishna mentioned. We read that quote earlier from lifetime to lifetime that the mind is the undisputed champion of the world. Nobody beats the mind. Everybody succumbs to the mind, except those who are able to pair up with Krishna and the holy name. So if somebody's able to do that, it's, it's the greatest wonderment in the world. For instance, in the, in the beginning of the Upadeshamrita, Rupa Goswami says that if someone is actually able to control the mind in the other senses, then that person becomes the champion of the world and can go around and help other people because it, it's not normal. It says everyone becomes that person's disciple because he or she was able to control the senses because the senses are the undisputed champions of the world and the mind is the leader of all of them. So, yes. Yes. Is uh, is the mind um, um, is is the mind the same as the physical organ, the brain? Is the mind the seat of uh, is the mind seated in the brain? Because you uh, you talked about consciousness. So if you take the brain out, then suddenly there's no consciousness. The person is like they they say that in medical science. If someone's brain dead, then the person is he's not alive. He has no consciousness anymore. Well, if we take one of these light sockets out, the electricity's not going to come through. Also. So the energy, the soul is there, but it can't be manifest. It's manifest temporarily through a particular instrument that's being used. And the mind is a subtle element. It's not the, it's not the 
uh, gross matter or the gray matter itself, that's more like the light socket. But there's uh, mind, intelligence and ego, manas, buddhi, and ahankar. So these are the three subtle elements that uh, Krishna mentions. And the, the aggregate of those is called the chitta. And it's the, the, the physical location is not just in the brain. It's also mentioned to be in the heart region. There are different energy centers within the body, and they all have different functions. They're known as chakras. They start at the bottom of the spine, and there's several that go all the way up to the top of the head. And there's a, uh, there are different functions at different levels. Each level or each energy center has a different function. Collectively, they're called the chitta. And the answer to the question is no, it's not just in the physical brain. But if you bash the light socket, and it, it's no longer connected, you're not going to see the electricity coming through. Three people on Zoom with a question. Okay. Please accept my humble obeisance, Cheshwala Prabhupada. Thank you. I like the point uh, that eyes are recording all the time, and uh, we are always recording, and the mind is the uh, digital cloud. Um, so I like that point, and since childhood, uh, you mentioned that a baby's been recording, and we are always recording. So I, I like that point. Thank you so much. Thank you, Danavari. So we have this word, content. Do you feel content? Yes, Guru. I can't hear anybody. Okay, you feel content. Danavari is always content. Uh, all the time. How, how about you? Do you all feel content? Sometimes? Our contentment is based on our content. It's spelled the same way. Content and content. And we're containers. Our bodies, minds are there to be filled up with the sense objects in the environment. And depending on what we put in there, that's how we're going to express our consciousness. Purusha prakriti stohi, bhunte prakriti jangunan, I quoted yesterday, karanam guna sangosya. Because of our association, we take in various images and so forth and modes of nature. That will determine our state of consciousness. So uh, a, little, a few more technicalities that come from the yoga teachings just about the mind. And this has to do with the, the system of the mind, which is um, made up of the subtle uh, body called the mind, intelligence, and ego. So we discussed uh, the samskars, and then uh, Patanjali, who, who goes into more details about the, the, the nature of the mind, the psychology of the mind, talks about how we make mistakes when the mind is uh, not in a purified state. So one of the ways he describes it is that uh, the, the, the mind is a, a surface like a screen. And of course, he gives this image of a, a pot of water. And then if you put the pot of water outside on a full moon night, or any manifestation of the moon, uh, there'll be a reflection of the moon in the water. So we're seeing a reflection of the world on the surface of our mind. Now, what happens if you move the water in the pot then it appears that the mind is moving. So similarly, when the mind becomes disturbed, then the world looks like it's disturbed also. So that explains it, doesn't it? Explains what? Wherever you go, there you are. It's, uh, our happiness or our perception of the world is depending, dependent on the state of our minds, not on the, on the state of the world. Because you can be, as Robert Blake said, you can make a, the poet said, you can be in heaven and turn it into hell, and be in hell and turn it into heaven based on the state of your mind. You can see this if somebody's hallucinating due to an imbalance in their minds or due to some kind of intoxication. They may be sitting there in a stable living room, for instance, 
and they may be alarmed that the couch is melting. The couch isn't melting, but the chitta is disturbed. It's uh, apparently stable inside the room. The rug is still there. It didn't turn into waves with sharks in it. But the mind is moving in that way, so therefore I see it like that. So there are ways in which Patanjali specifically mentions how there's mistakes that take place in the mind. And uh, some of them have to do with accepting the impermanent to be permanent. He said this is a big mistake that causes us a lot of trouble. And there's three more. And they all relate to uh, misidentifying myself as the body. The second is that I accept the impure to be pure. The third is I accept pain to be happiness. And I accept the non-self to be the self. These are all uh, the results of mistakenly thinking that I'm the mind uh, and body. I identify with the mind and I identify with the body. And then he talks about uh, how the mind has uh, various afflictions. So I'll just tell you about three of the afflictions he mentions. Raga, Dvesha, and Abhinibheshita. So raga means uh, attachment to certain things based on my past experience. So let's say in your last life you were married to somebody who was um, really fat and bald. And so in this lifetime when you see a fat, bald person, you think, oh, I love that person. And you become attracted because that's your... That's your impression that becomes manifest. Uh, this is raga. I'm attached to certain things. Why am I attached to? I'm a red state. I'm a blue state. I'm a whatever uh, state of mind I'm in. Red, blue, yellow. Uh, because of previous associations, and this is raga. I get attached to certain things. I don't know why. I just am. Uh, why are you attached to a certain uh, a team? Because I grew up there, and everybody was attached to that certain team. You know, so uh, then dwesha is the opposite side of the coin, which is that you're averse to it. I'm averse to certain type of things. Any foods you don't like, particularly? Can you name just one? Which? You don't like papaya? <laughs> okay. <laughs> no judgment. Uh, <laughs> You see? <laughs> Some people might not like avocados, but none of them are friends of mine. Uh, for long. Uh, that's just because I grew up in California. They fed me avocados and artichokes when I was a kid. And I thought, yeah, I'm a Californian. I like art avocados and artichokes. That's just the way I am. It's a state of mind. Raga dvesha. But abhinibheshita is a full uh, absorption in not wanting to not exist. That was hard. You have to know algebra to actually, uh, you know, two negatives make a positive. So uh, this means that because I've left my physical body so many times in the past. How many times? Well, let's just say there's a sage that's mentioned. Uh, there's a story about a sage who um, could recall uh, 10, all his life, every body he was in for 10 kalpas. A kalpa's 311 trillion years times 10. What's that? Anybody know? Huh? Three hundred, three quadrillion and something. Yeah. So, because he was a yogi, he could remember all his previous lifetimes, and he was once interviewed by another sage who really wanted to talk to him. Had to come out of his, this other sage was in a subtle body, but he had to manifest a physical body to inter, interview this other yogi, and he said, I want you to tell me, because it was well known that this yogi was always in the mode of goodness and he had the power of being able to see every lifetime for three quad, 300 quadrillion uh, years times how many lives. And he said, so was there more happiness or, or more unhappiness? 
what's the balance? And the yogi said, there was only unhappiness, no happiness. And, he's, and the, the interview was incredulous, and he said, well, what do you mean by that? I mean, you're in the mode of goodness. You enjoy even heavenly pleasures, and your mind's always steady. It's never contaminated uh, by the modes, just the mode of goodness in the material world. And he said, the mode of goodness in the material world, in my experience here, is like being in a prison, but being promoted to the first-class cell. So if you get put on death row, and then they say, we're going to give you the best cell in here. You're like, hey, thanks. <laughs> so there's a, way, there's a way in which that a bini beishita is quite natural. If you, if you look at any little living entity, like finches, I really like finches a lot. In fact, we put out uh, a, a water fountain that goes around, and, I mean, it just keeps filling up, and they figured out that it's a spa, a little finch spa. There's a bird feeder over on the side, you get yourself some Niger seeds, and then you can come over and take a little yogi bath. They're like little yogis, they live out in the elements. So th these finches, kind of the cutest little animal you could ever see. And I come over to talk to them, and then they take off. They look at me like, you're going to kill me, right? And he's like, no, I love finches. You guys are the cutest little animals I ever saw in my life. But they think I'm going to kill them. They think everyone's going to kill them. And they're probably right. And they know that because, dot, 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 question mark. Because it's happened to them so many times. Every living entity is looking over his or her shoulder thinking, you know, when's it going to happen? When's the phone call going to come? When's the report going to come? And so forth. I hate to be macabre because I know this is a family show. But the fact is, this is what it says in the Shastra. Abhinibeshita means absorption in this fear of not wanting to leave it all behind yet again after 300 quadrillion times 300 quadrillion. In fact, the Shastra says, it's been since a time immemorial that I've been accepting one body and after another in this material world. So there's this suffering within the mind. This is one of the pains in the mind that I have to leave it all. And we know that because no matter what we get, whatever situation we're in, it's like, ah, you're going to go. So, as if that wasn't enough, uh, this compels us in samsara, which means every time we take a new body, we get assigned an ayu, which means a duration of life, and we also get boga, a certain amount of happiness, and you can't get more, no matter how hard you try, except on the spiritual level. And you have uh, your uh, karma, that is the impulses that are gonna push you in a certain way. Those come free of charge, with every new body. They're just thrown in, just like the undercoating on a car. They throw it in for you. Um, so the mind flows in two ways, either towards attachment to this material world and becoming more and more attached is called weakness of heart, W-O-H, or woe. And then you've got f upflow towards uh, spiritual enlightenment and freedom from the tyranny of the mind and everything that comes with it. So which would you like? Come on, you got to raise your hand fast. Okay, I'll, I'll give you two choices. Would you like the upflow towards self-realization and detachment from the mind and attachment to the spiritual world? A, or B, downflow into the material world? Okay, thank you. A. So this, this gives uh, kind of uh, a an outline of our existential situation, having accepted a particular apparatus that contains also a mind, and then there are instructions, which come next in the second section, about how to work with the mind so that it becomes your friend. But before I go, go on, which I won't do much, we're going to go back to chanting, I'm going to talk about it in the next class, but uh, what refle other reflections do you have? Did I leave one on the board? Uh, sure, 
Ashraya Madhav is here. Well, that's a big deal. Okay, go ahead, Prabhu. Hare Krishna Guru Maharaj. Um, the, the, the last statements, the few choices you made is, I don't know, uh, you probably read my mind there because that's exactly I was I was going to say, uh, you know, on the second chapter of Bhagavad Gita, Lord Krishna, in the verse 59, 60 and 61, that's what he's saying that uh, this, the senses are so powerful that even if even a person of discrimination is trying to control it, you know, gets carried away. And there, Lord Krishna is saying that un- until you have that higher taste by you know focusing on me, you develop that concentration on me. This this thing will keep happening. You know, you you will keep getting carried away by the by the strong senses. Yeah, and that's terrible, and I hate to leave you in that situation. So although I said I'd say it in the next class, I'm going to say it now. The practice uh, is best taken up by following the instruction of the Shastra, which is divinely imparted upon us, to give us a direction about how to overcome the mind and come to the perfect stage of life. That preamble, I will tell you that the main process recommended is the chanting of uh, the divine names. First of all, I'll say that Rishabhadeva, one of Krishna's incarnations, has mentioned that you can't be happy by taking a pill or by having a beverage. There are beverages that... Uh, the people offer certain beverages saying that you can get happiness from, for, from them. For instance, Coca-Cola advertises open a bottle of happiness. It's not available in, in a beverage, no matter how iconic the can or bottle is. And also, you can't get it by um, changing your location. Anybody go to Hawaii recently? <laughs> I'll just take that as a confirmation of the points I'm going to make, and I'll leave it at that. So, I mean, you know, it's okay, but it's uh, fraught with the same kind of problems. There are ambulances running all over that island. So the way to rise above it is through sacred service. So he mentions this in Sanskrit as tapo divyam. Austerity, you have to do some sacrifice. Everybody knows anyway, if, if they admit it and look at it carefully, that you don't get happiness just by lying around. You have to have some purpose in life, and you have to do something that is purposeful to develop yourself. Then you start to feel happy. The highest type of development is spiritual development. It's called tapodivyam, where you take some trouble, tapasya, in order to connect with the divine. So this is... A sacred service. Do some service that's sacred. If you do that, then you'll be happy. Does that make you happy just hearing about it? So the best way to do it, according to the ancient Shastras, we're reading just now, just went through the, the section of Karabhajana Muni in the 11th canto, and he gives uh, several pointers about how in this particular age, the main process is to chant the names of God. So you could do that, and it'll work. So much so that one of the scriptures called the Padma Purana says that if you are chanting daily and you feel like you're not doing a very good job of it, anyone? Did that invite Siri to talk? I can hear back there. Uh, Siri? Uh, no, it did. Okay. <laughs> what, does she wa- what does she want? She was just answering the question. Okay. So if you feel like you're not doing very well at your chanting, the Padma Purana says, keep chanting. Because the name is so powerful, and if you keep doing it, then even though you may start off by chanting even offensively, because you just can't help yourself, if you don't stop and you keep going, the name will overcome the offenses, and you'll come to the perfect stage. How does that make you feel? Good, right? Say, yay. All right, so... Um, then we have a little poem that's attributed to Bhaktivinoda Thakur. 
I'd have to ask Manjula Kanta about it because I think she's the one who put it on, on my um, Google Doc, but it says, your mind is wandering all over the universe when you chant, chant anyway. Your mind is wandering to the past and future when you chant, chant anyway. You are not able to concentrate on Krishna's names while you chant. You have no taste for chanting. You have lusty desires, chant anyway. You are making offenses in chanting. You're not praying to Krishna to help you chant better. You often chant late at night. Okay. So why? Why should you chant despite all the obstacles? There's no vow like chanting the holy name, no knowledge superior to it, no meditation which comes anywhere near it, and it gives the highest result. No penance is equal to it, and nothing is as potent or powerful as the holy name. Chanting is the greatest act of piety and the supreme refuge. Even the words of the Vedas do not possess sufficient power to describe its magnitude. Chanting is the highest path to liberation, peace, and eternal life. It's the pinnacle of devotion, the heart's joyous proclivity and attraction, and the best form of remembrance of Supreme Lord. The Holy Name has appeared solely for the benefit of the living entities as their Lord and Master, their supreme worshipable object, and their spiritual guide and mentor. Whoever continuously chants Lord Krishna's Holy Name even in his or her sleep, can easily realize that the name is a direct manifestation of Krishna himself in spite the influences, despite, should say, of the influences of Kali Yuga. Srila Bhakti Thakur from Sharanagati, Adi Putana. Yes? So just chant and keep going, don't stop. Uh, yes? Rasayana Kata. Okay, please go ahead. Hare Krishna Guru Maharaj and Pranam. Guruji, I was thinking, I was reflecting on um, the, uh, the anecdote that you gave about boxing with the mind. And I was thinking from my little experience in boxing in the past. So I was thinking that every time uh, we get a break in between the rounds, the boxer, what he does is that he goes back to his corner. And um, at, that, at that spot, the coach comes, comes to him and gives a pep talk and nourishes him. We replaces his gum guards and everything. So I was thinking it's very, pretty much parallel to our practice is that whenever we get an opportunity, whenever we get a chance, we should go back to our, to our source, to our spiritual masters, to the association of devotees, to nourish ourselves con con continuously by hearing Krishna Katha, hearing their instructions that when, when we come back to the ring, we, become, we come back even more stronger, more, um, um, and we are able to uh, knock off the mind even much in an in a, in a, even, even more better way. So I'm thinking of that. Yay. Thank you so much. Get a towel, you fan in them. Okay, you can do it. Get back in there. <laughs> you just, <laughs> a little water, you go back in and you can do it. Yes, thank you. One more online. We have advocates over here for you online, those of you online. I must say you, you have a group here. Okay. Hello. Thank you very much for signing a Yes, who's next? Hare uh, Krishna. Rupa Manjuri. Oh. Is that who? Yes. Rupa Manjuri, are you there? Hari Bold, Andhra Pranam. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm feeling a little under the weather, so I'm going to be off camera if that's okay. Um, sure. But um, I've been reading, I've been very fortunate to be in a reading group, um, reading uh, Srila Raghunathas Goswami's Manashiksha, which is Instructions to the Mind. And the thing that sort of struck me as soon as you, I looked up your boxing the mind metaphor vignette, which was very uh, intriguing, um, was uh, the difference in tone, I guess, in that the boxing metaphor, we're fighting the mind. And we, Krishna says the mind can be uh, the greatest enemy. And, but in Manashiksha, Raghunath Das Thakur is always calling the mind my brother, my friend, uh, he's sort of entreating the mind uh, and uh, persuading it in a very sweet kind of, uh, so it's sort of like stick in the carrot. Um, the neg and so I was wondering if you could comment a little bit about when, how do we decide when we need to be the boxer? How do we decide when we need to be the, you know, the entreat, the carrot, give it the carrot. And what is the, what do you think? What is the nature, if you could maybe speak a little bit on the nature of the carrot a little bit? Well, what works best with the metaphor of boxing is the regimen 
that uh, the boxer puts in. In fact, what's his name, Pacquiao? We've got a bunch of boxers in here, don't we? I don't actually know. Manny Pacquiao. Manny Pacquiao. Oh, now we got to read his quote. Manny says, if you work hard in training, the fight is easy. So what works in these athletic kind of metaphors and contests is you got to be up for it. Don't be a slouch. You know, prepare yourself. And be brave. Get in there. And the other part, really, about uh, the carrot is, is more, um, there's another section here about um, being um, detached from the mind. Not necessarily that that's friendly, but there's a way, a way in which uh, the Hums avatar explains that it's not that we have to um, detach our mind from the world, but we have to detach ourselves from our minds. And there's a way to do that by being uh, neutral to the mind, that it's, it may suggest so many things, and you can say, yes, sir, very good, sir, that sounds like a good idea, but just right, not right now. And this is called tender loving neglect that uh, we engaged. That's, that's moving the needle a little closer to that. And, uh, and of course, we would follow Raghunath Das Goswami's admonition to be, be a, uh, treat the mind with respect. And to be sweet to it means to feed it nice things. That's a good way to be friendly to somebody is feed them but give them good stuff. So you could, you could feed the mind Sriman Bhagavatam. I notice that if I give the, my mind a nice feast of Srimad Bhagavatam and chant good rounds, then it's kind of nice back for a while. So that's a, something. Does that help? Does that work? Okay, thank you. I certainly have to try it for myself. Okay. I think she said it was okay. Okay, yes, last Hare, point before Hare we Krishna. Uh, I have a question. Yes. So we do, uh, I do the devotional practice, right? Like how to, because sometimes... Could you hold the mic closer, please? Yeah, uh, how to find out that my devotional practice I'm doing... How to find what? How to find out the devotional practice I'm doing is, is, to not, is to feed my ego and pride. Because sometimes when you feed ego and pride, I feel good about it, right? And uh, how to make sure that, uh, how to find it out by ourselves and how to make sure that the devotional practice... How to make practice, sure your devotional practice is properly aligned. Aligned, and I'm not doing just to feed my ego and pride, because when I feed my ego and pride, I feel good about it, that, right? You talk to Srivats Pandit afterwards, he'll tell you. So you need a personal guide? To, he's right here. Can you see in the front? You meet with him afterwards and tell him what you're doing, and he'll give you, according to the Shastra, what's a good way to practice and, you know, good time to get up in the morning, things like that. Okay, there's one more on the, on the board. Yes, please go ahead. Who is it? From UNR. From UNR, what's that? University of Reno. Really? Okay, please go ahead. Oh yeah, that's me, Michael, hello. Oh Michael, hi, good to see you. It's good to see you, too. I mean, I don't have my camera. Can you see the cameras right now? I can see a bear. <laughs> oh, looks like a bear. so yeah. Okay. No, there's a reason I didn't have my camera on. Would you like to see or would you like not to see? What? Okay. Oh, well, anyways, no. I had COVID, so I was like... You know, it was a joke. Anyways, look, check out my little thing uh, live nice. from you. But um, thank you very much. And my question was, you touched on pleasure and pain a lot. And hmm, I'm going to pass it back to the last person. Okay. Well, We'd like to offer a prayer that you recover quickly and with full strength. And that's coming from our hearts. Om Tat Sat. Feel better soon.
Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Good to see you. And now we have, yes? Now we have uh, one more. Yes. Radhabalava Prabhu, please pass the mic. And the last uh, discussion I was thinking about friend and enemy mind to beat him in a boxing. So Mataji was asking the question. I was thinking Krishna says mind is both friend as well as enemy. But he says conquered mind is friend. So initially we have to <laughs> do the boxing, fight, fight, beat him. And if you see a typical uh, boxing match, I mean... I sometimes watch. <laughs> uh, once the person beats the other person, the other person is little, you know, like this, and raise the hand, and kind of friendly, and they embrace each other and go, right? So that point, the mind becomes friend. <laughs> then we can say, hello, my friend, and oh, hello, you know, brother, whatever it is. But till that time, we have to, whatever you are saying in the beginning, you know, we have to fight. Yes, thank you very much for resolving that. He's a, a, a resolver because his heart is so soft. Uh, and there's, there's also a mention in the Bhagavatam that even if the mind seems to be a friend, you should still be on guard because the example is given of a wild animal. Sometimes people, they're like, yeah, I keep a bear in my house. We're good friends. You know, and then it's like... You know, what happened to Larry? It's like, he got eaten by a bear. <laughs> I think Siegfried and Roy found that out too with the white tigers and things like that. One of them got mauled after 20 years or something of uh, working with them. Thank you very much. Hare Krishna.